Perkins. What a sweet time in prayer. I am thankful that the Lord is going to continue to bless us through the topic of prayer in today's sermon. If you're able, open up to 1 John chapter 5 as we bring our study of 1 John to a close. Not today. But soon. Lord will. This is kind of a part two of our message that we heard last in 1 John concerning our confidence in Christ. The topic today is our assurance through prayer. Remember, God is concerned with our assurance. And today's topic is assurance through prayer. We're going to be looking at two verses today, verses 16 and verse 17. This is the thesis of today's message. God uses our imperfect prayers to accomplish His perfect will. Think about that. God uses our imperfect prayers to accomplish His perfect will. The general outline for today's message is three in part. We're going to cut the first verse in half, 16. 16a is, under the heading, moved to pray. Moved to pray. 16b, moved to tremble. And lastly, verse 17, moved to rejoice. So moved to pray, moved to tremble, moved to rejoice. With your Bibles open, even though we're looking at verse 16 and 17, I want to begin reading in verse 13 for context. So follow along with me, starting in verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. The Apostle John says this. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from Him. Our verse under consideration. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death, I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. Let's ask the Lord one more time to help us as we consider these verses. Father in heaven, we ask that you would be with us now by your spirit to those of us who believe in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to rightly understand these verses. Help us, Lord, in our present circumstances, whatever they may be. Guide us by your Spirit who authored these words, that we may rightly understand them and apply them to our lives. For your glory and our good, we 
ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And what a friend we have in Jesus. We sang it this morning. I didn't ask Brad to select that song, but God chose for him to select that song. This hymn rightfully reminds us that we must fix our eyes on our sin-bearing Savior as we strive against our own sin daily. He is our ever-present help. Indeed, He is the only help for a sin-stricken world. And yet, Jesus is only savingly available to those who belong to Him. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. And what a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. And I might add, through, him, through Jesus, through Him. But it is not just our own sin that we're often up against. So often, it is the sins of others. Even others who, like us, are in the household of faith. And who also have the privilege of bold and confident access to God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. What then? What do we do? Do these same stanzas apply? You may recall what the Holy Spirit has commanded us to do through the Apostle Paul. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, that is sin, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. That's Galatians 6. Therefore, bearing each other's burdens is also the privilege of the Christian. And yet how often we neglect it, sadly to our own discomfort and pain. I believe the following stanzas indeed apply. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Here's the point. We as Christians have and often need to be reminded of the bold confidence that is ours as we pray for other Christians. Because God has promised that those words, a Christian praying for another Christian, those prayers accomplish much, much more than might previously been expected. And that is what we're going to learn about today. So we're going to move to our first heading. Moved to pray. Verse 16a. Read with me. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give for him Life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. When a Christian prays for another Christian, they are granted a bold confidence that their prayers will be.
be answered. Before we unpack this theologically, let us look linguistically at some observations. First, you might notice that there are several words, even in the first half of verse 16, which are in italics. That's if you're reading in the NASB. That is a study help for us to know what words are not in the original language. They're added there for commentary. You might notice that it's the word leading. You might notice the word God. These words are added as commentary. Let me read the verse as it would read in the original. I believe this will help us. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not to death, he shall ask, and he will give for him, give life to those who commit sin not to death. First, if anyone sees, this is in what's called the errorist tense, which expresses an action, especially a past action, without indicating its completion or continuation. In other words, this isn't if you've seen your brother committing a sin in the past, or if you've seen your brother committing a sin in the future exclusively. It includes all of those things. In other words, if anyone should see his brother committing a sin, past, present, future, he shall ask. He shall ask. This is in the future indicative, which means he will ask. Not he has asked in the past, but he will ask. So brothers and sisters, if you have seen someone in the past who is your brother or sister sinning, if you see them presently sinning, if you see them in the future sinning, you will ask. You will ask. And what is that ask? It's pray. This is a progressive action. Then there's another note that John gives. He says, he shall ask... And in our text, the NASB, it says, and God will give for him life. But literally, it's he. And he will for him give life. Now, I think it's a good note and a good commentary that our NASB text put God, even though the word theos is not in the text, it's he. Because otherwise we may get the wrong idea. If anyone sees his brother sinning, committing a sin not to death, he shall ask, and he will give life to those who commit a sin not leading to death. Are we as believers ultimately the ones who give life to our brothers or sisters in sin? Well, I think there's a way that it can be understood. I think that we can give life to our brothers and sisters instrumentally. Because remember, we worship a God who uses means to accomplish His ends. Remember, God uses our imperfect prayers to accomplish His perfect will. But theologically, we do understand that at the end of the day, it is God who is giving life. God is the giver of life. 
wonders of wonders, he uses us to be the instruments through which life comes, especially to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Those are just some linguistic observations concerning this first part of verse 16. So what is John doing? John is bringing his spiritual children to assurance. Assurance. It all flows back to verse 14. This is the confidence that we have before him. John is bringing his spiritual children to assurance, which leads to confidence, which leads to confident prayer. What is the, what is the opposite way? What is the contrasting way? If we don't do this, what are we doing? We're not praying for those who are our brothers and sisters who are committing sins, especially against us. But God wants us to pray for those sinning in the congregation. God doesn't want us to gossip about their sin. God doesn't want us to join them in their sin. And God doesn't want us to ignore their sin. Oh, we know how hard that is when someone is sinning against us. Especially if it's someone who's close to us. And who is closer than a brother or a sister in Christ? Now, God wants us to pray for them. Here's the wonders of wonders. Here is the promise. In doing so, God will give them life. He will give them life that he might restore them to health and strength. And I'm talking spiritual health and spiritual life. God wants to use us as instruments of his promised mercy upon the household of faith, and he does so. He has ordained the prayers that we will pray. And he has already decreed the ends that are accomplished by those means. Again, what a rebuke to our prayerlessness. Listen to James. James chapter 5. The brother of our Lord writes this. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. See, who's raising him up? It's the Lord. But what is the Lord using? The prayer of his people. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, James says, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another 
so that you may be healed. What did the hymn say? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Again, this is this is law. This is what we not only should do, but are commanded to do. And yet so often we fall short, don't we, brothers and sisters? It's a rebuke to us. The gospel is coming. But this is not just a rebuke to us. It is not just encouraging to us at the same time that we ought to pray more. Giving us clarity of what we should do when we are caught in sins ourselves or others are sinning against us, especially those in the household of faith. But it is also a rebuke to those who have left the household of faith. This is what I believe the Apostle John moves to next in our second heading. Moved to tremble. Verse 16b, read with me. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. This bold confidence in prayer that exists within the Christian community is also a grave warning to those who have left. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make a request, that he should pray for this. Remember, the early Christian community was being infiltrated by imposters who taught a heretical Jesus and promoted a licentious counterfeit ethic these were the many antichrists who had already appeared. Remember, John has spoken of them in chapter 2. He said this in verses 18 through 19 of chapter 2. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Now, much ink has been spilled over what the Apostle means by this sin that leads to death. And why it is that he's saying we should not pray for this. The early church, some, even Augustine, saw this as being a category of two different kinds of sins. The Roman Catholic Church had carried on this understanding. I'm not saying this was Augustine's understanding, but they carried on this distinction of two different sets of sins, as we might understand as being a venial sin and a mortal sin. A venial sin can be forgiven, but a mortal sin brings death. And John, according to the Roman Catholic, may be saying, we're not to pray for those who are committing mortal sins. There is a context in the Old Testament whereby sins were classified in two, kind of, in two categories. In the Levitical law, we even read about it in the book of Numbers in our providential morning readings, 
that there were sins that could be covered by sacrifices, and yet other sins that if were committed would lead to the execution of the person in the congregation. Others would connect this to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If we recall in the Gospels, Jesus said, Every sin will be forgiven to the sons of men except for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That sin will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come. Now, while there may be an application to be made with all these interpretations, I believe that in the context, the best interpretation has to do with what John has said previously. That there is a sin that leads unto death may not be limited to, but certainly speaks of these categories of the many antichrists who had already come. Believing and teaching a counterfeit Jesus and promoting a counterfeit ethic. John had spoken time and time again as he recapitulated the same arguments time and time again in this epistle. 1 John 4.3, he spoke of concerning the docetic error. Those who say that Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh. Or 1 John 4.20, concerning those who hated the Christian community. If anybody hates his brother, how many times has he said that in this epistle? I believe these are the sins that lead to death. The rejection of the Christian community <coughs> by these lawless teachers teaching a counterfeit Christ, teaching a counterfeit ethic. The rejection of the Christian community happened because of their erroneous and vile ethic of lawlessness. Why would that be? Why would these false teachers who taught a false Christ and a false ethic leave the church? Why wouldn't they stay? Why would they go out? Well, John says they went out from us to show that they were never truly of us. But I would also argue that 1 Corinthians 15.33 holds sway. Bad company corrupts good morals. You say, wait, that's the opposite. Right. It also works the other way. Good company repels bad morals. John says this in his gospel. John 3.20, he says this, For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. The more we know of the will of God, the more we can expose those false teachers who even gather among us today who teach a counterfeit ethic. God's not really concerned with what you do with your body. He's not really concerned with what you do with your mind. He's not really concerned with sin. John's going to get to the importance of having a biblical view of sin as we come to the next verse. But I believe another brother of Jesus, another half-brother, not James this time, but Jude, said something very similar when he spoke about these men who had crept in teaching this heretical Christ and this heretical ethic. Jude said, These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, 
carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit. And then he says this, doubly dead. That's interesting. How can somebody be doubly dead? You're either dead or you're alive, aren't you? Jude says, no, it's possible to be doubly dead. Brothers and sisters, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins, were we not? We were born. We were conceived in iniquity. And yet, imagine if you joined the Christian community as an unbeliever, and then left the Christian community as an unbeliever. Guess what? You're doubly dead. Not that you're any more spiritually dead than you were to begin with, but you have abandoned the only hope of salvation. This is what I believe Hebrews is talking about. When Paul wrote in Hebrews 6, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, we can qualify that, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. You're doubly dead if you leave the household of faith, even if you gathered in unbelief. Because what was preached in the book of Acts is preached here this morning. To those who gather with us, who are dead in their trespasses and sins still, the truth remains. Listen, there is salvation in nobody else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Oh, dear ones that gather here, do not be doubly dead. Repent and believe in the only hope of salvation. Jesus Christ. But for those who have left the household of faith, there is much cause to tremble. John is making a distinction when he's telling the Christian congregation, pray for your brothers and sisters. He's not saying, oh, there is a category you ought not pray for, ultimately, because at the end of the day, we're supposed to pray for our enemies. There isn't a category of people we ought not to pray for. But there is a category that we are to pray for with an attached blessing and promise. And that is when we pray for each other as brothers and sisters. We don't have that promise when we pray for those who are outside of the household of faith. Certainly false teachers who have left the household of faith. We do not have the promise that God will bring them to life through our prayers. We have the hope. We don't have the promise. This leads us to the last part. Moved to rejoice. For the Christian, this bold confidence in prayer is also a reminder of the assurance of forgiveness that is had before the throne of God. 
The Apostle John, although wanting to comfort believers with the truth that their sin doesn't lead to death, nevertheless wants to communicate the uncompromising message that all sin is lawlessness. Lest you think, brothers and sisters, that your sin is not serious. John wants to remind you, all unrighteousness is sin. He said it before. 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. In fact, here is a fine example of the literary technique seen throughout this whole epistle. John is re recapitulating the same idea again. When John says that all unrighteousness is sin in this verse, and there is a sin not leading to death, it is a rephrasing of what he said before. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. But it also corresponds with what comes next. John follows up by letting us know, and there is a sin not leading to death in this verse. And in 5.17, I'm sorry, in 3.5, he said, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. This, brothers and sisters, helps us to understand how it could be that there is a sin that does not lead to death. I asked this question in family worship last night. I said, how is it possible that there is a sin not leading to death? What is the rightful consequence for sin? Child answer, death. All sin deserves death. Then how could it be that there is a sin not leading to death? How is it possible? Answer, because Jesus paid for it. This helps us to understand how it could be that there is a sin that does not lead to death. And brothers and sisters, it's our sin. Our sin does not lead to death. Our death, yes, it led to the death of our Savior. But if you're in Christ, it doesn't lead to yours. Hallelujah. In conclusion, I want to turn to John 17. If you're able, turn to John 17. What better place to conclude a sermon on prayer, a second part on prayer, for our last sermon also touched upon it, the confidence that we have in prayer. What better place to go to than our Lord, His prayer. In John 17, we're following a discourse on prayer from chapter 16, and then we have, as a privilege, the words of our Lord's prayer. How did Jesus pray? 17 verse 1, Jesus spoke these things. And lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that 
the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is the unbreakable promise, the sure promise that the Apostle John is giving us today in the fact that there is a sin that does not lead to death. Skip to verse 13. Jesus says this, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. In light of this law bearing upon us, brothers and sisters, concerning our lack of prayer, concerning our lack of understanding the power of prayer, our understanding the promises that God has made in our prayers, Jesus wants to give us his joy. He says, I have given them your word, and he's speaking of the apostles and disciples. And the world hates them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. For they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. Now listen to verse 20 very carefully. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. Who's he speaking of? The disciples, the apostles. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Whose word are we listening to this morning? It's the Holy Spirit's word, but who did he choose to write this word? The Apostle John. Do you believe it? If the answer to that question is yes, underline verse 20, because Jesus is praying for you. He has prayed for you. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. This prayer of our Lord is and will be answered by God our Father. Why do we have confidence that if we pray for another Christian, God will bring them to life? Because Jesus prayed this prayer. Because Jesus was sent by the Father to rescue those who were given to him by the Father. And if you are in that number, the prayers of other Christians for you will ultimately result in life. And Lord willing, will restore you to spiritual health and vitality even before that final day when he, when he appears in glory to call us to himself. We who are in Christ already have had the Son of God praying to the Father for us to keep us from sin. Do you pray for those Christians who sin against you? Do you pray that God would keep them from sin? Do 
you pray that God would keep you from joining them in their sin. We who are in Christ continue to have the Son of God interceding for us before the Father. As Pastor Perkins serves the Lord's Supper, the words will be spoken that Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us even now. Jesus is praying for you, believer. We who are in Christ have an unwavering confidence when we pray for our brothers and sisters that God will answer our prayers and restore them. So when we see each other sinning, let us fulfill the law of Christ and help carry each other's burdens. Not just by going to our brother and sister who are sinning against us, May we ask of Him who has promised in His Son, knowing that He will answer and give life. Father, what a privilege we have in prayer to come to You through Your only begotten Son, carrying the promise that when we pray for our fellow brothers and sisters, it results in you giving them life. Oh Lord, it is humbling that you would use broken vessels like us, that you would use our imperfect prayers to accomplish your perfect will. Father, we rejoice because Knowing this about our prayers doesn't just burden us. It gives us assurance. Assurance that we stand blameless before your throne. Because our sins have been paid for. Our sins do not lead to death as others do. Our sins have been paid for. Oh Lord, may it be your will that you would restore, that you would save, that you would bring to life those who hear this message, who do not know you savingly, that they may not die twice. Like the brother of our Lord, James and Jude, who did not believe at first. May our loved ones come to the household of faith, and join in the song unto the Lamb who was slain for our good and your glory. It's in his precious name, Jesus. Who was slain.